right, let's get going. I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for what you desire to do and speak in this time. And I ask God that your word will flow forth from heaven in this time with clarity and inspiration and anointing that only you can give, God. So we honor you and we bless your name tonight, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again for all the prayers. Uh, it's, it's very much needed when we're over there, and, and it's been astounding to see what God continues to do. Uh, I often get questions about uh, what exactly does ministry consist of in India, and uh, the brief answer to that is that God has uh, basically birthed uh, um, a network, a church network that is um, rapidly growing where pastors are coming together and uh, serving the vision of Riverhouse India, which is to equip and empower the local church. And so everything that we're doing is actually in tandem and partnership with, with uh, national leadership, uh, so Indians. Uh, so it's, uh, we're looking to build a sustainable ministry model, that, and uh, at this point that includes uh, pastors' conferences. Uh, we have a, a biblical seminary uh, that right now is men, but uh, in June will be our first class of women as well. Yeah. So very exciting. Um, we'll have about 35 students come this June. And then, uh, and then also we will do, uh, we've done uh, revival crusades, healing crusades, where um, we see salvation and uh, many people come and experience the love of Jesus. And so it's kind of a threefold um, vision that we're doing to try to be, um, to sow into what's taking place. There's a Riverhouse India uh, ministry that's locally run there. And we have Pastor Stephen who oversees that. And he has about 12 pastors underneath him who have their own churches, but then volunteer um, 10 to 20 hours a week serving the vision of Riverhouse India um, of their own, out of the joy of their hearts, because uh, it's just God's birthed it. And so it's incredible what's taking place. And uh, so we, we hope that many of you can continue to come and, and unite um, our church with the persecuted church of India. So that's what we're doing over there when we're there. One of those things, so that was supposed to be kind of funny, but it <laughs> kind of fell flat, so no, I feel good, so I'm gonna, I want to talk about hope tonight, I, I don't receive that word, so <laughs> I want to talk about hope and the power of hope and the, the power of what it really accomplishes in our spirituality and you know I've heard it described I think Bill Johnson was probably the first person I heard define hope in this way but uh, we also we often look at hope as if it's uh, like wishful thinking you know I hope that happens I hope this happens and that really falls short of uh, biblical hope and hope is not really a suggestion uh, for some reason, on like the kind of upbeat things of scripture, we kind of take them like they're suggestions, like hope and joy. For some reason, we act like those are like good ideas, but you can take them or leave them. They're really not. Like, they're very essential to a healthy spirituality. Can I get an amen? amen. 
All right, so hope deferred makes the heart sick. So hope is very important. And uh, for me, uh, I've, I've always had faith, strong faith. I probably have a gift of faith all my life. And when you have a gift of faith and you don't have hope, uh, it's actually kind of a psychotic situation because you're setting yourself up for constant disappointment because, you know, hope is this confident expectation that God's good, right? So it's like God is endlessly good and endlessly creative and he can bless me and bring satisfaction and fulfillment to my life in like a million ways, right? Faith like zeroes in on one thing, like I'm believing God for blank, right? And uh, being a faith person, I mean, I remember started believing God for all types of things. I'm sure some of them weren't even that great of things looking back, but I would believe, man. And then when I'd get disappointed and it wouldn't work out quite like I thought, I'd be in this really low, like low place, questioning everything because I didn't have hope, right? And hope is like this environment that actually propels us into bold faith because it's like, oh, well, that didn't work out but there's like a million other ways it could. Does that make sense? It's like faith puts all your eggs in one basket, but hope is like there's a billion eggs out there. So even if that basket doesn't work out, there's some other ones, right? Does that make sense? So we need hope and faith. Hope actually is an environment where true, godly, bold faith can emerge from, and faith apprehends the promises of God. Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, uh, promises were fulfilled. So we need to be people of faith. We know that, but I want to talk about hope tonight and the power of hope, right? We, uh, we need to live and be able to live in this environment. And, and what I heard Bill Johnson to circle back talk about was uh, hope is like Christmas morning. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, we, we had our bedrooms were upstairs and you could kind of look down. We had a vaulted ceiling living room so you could kind of see the top of the tree but not the bottom of the tree till you actually got down there. And I was always like the lazy sleeper and so I remember my brothers, would I would always be the one getting woken up. Jordan, it's Christmas. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Santa came. And, you know, the, that expectation when you woke up on Christmas morning was compelling. It was like, oh my gosh, yes, you're right. Like, and it was like, I remember the dynamic was always like, can we come down? Can we come down yet? And my mom would be like, no, 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 just wait, just wait. You know, like that tension, like what we were experiencing, we hadn't yet seen, I hadn't seen the present Santa was going to give me. I didn't know exactly what I was going to get, but it was, I, I was compelled with hope. I was absolutely convinced that goodness was coming to me on that morning. Does that make sense? That's hope. That is the conviction of hope. And um, God is better than my mom and dad and Santa. <laughs> I know that's hard to believe for some of you. But he's truly better than Santa. I didn't find out until I was in like fourth or fifth grade. I cried all the way to school when I found out Santa wasn't real. I was a faith kid. I believed in the invisible, so I think I got reward for that. But uh, I, um, God's better than Santa. God's better than my parents. And it says in James, he's the father of lights who gives without variation or shifting shadow. He am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constantly revealing himself as a good, kind, benevolent God that gives and gives and gives and gives. And he bankrupted heaven, and if he wouldn't withhold his son, what will he? 
right? And so we have permission, and actually not just permission, but we're actually called to live in an internal environment of hope where we should wake up in the morning with this confident expectation. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know what it looks like, but there is something good coming my way today. Right? And hope is this environment. It trains us to be alive to what God's doing. And then out of that, faith can emerge. And we can believe God for the promises and, and see things come to pass. And Abraham, the man of faith, uh, we forget he's also the man of hope. It says in Romans, here, I'll read it for you. Romans 4.18, in hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. His hope preceded his faith. He hoped against hope. Right? We have to be a people that are marked by hope if we are to be a people that see and are alive to what God's doing. Because I think often, you know, hope deferred makes a heart sick because we just don't have eyes to see what God's doing. We're actually shut off from the goodness that he's desiring to bring because often it's like, you know, if I woke up on Christmas, I didn't think presents were coming and I pouted and left, I wouldn't get them. You know, and a lot of times that's what hopelessness does. It gets us um, clouded in our vision and away from his goodness. And so uh, I want to talk about hope because uh, this is powerful, it's important, but it's also, uh, I think, the consequence of some internal things that take place. And so I actually think it is a process of cultivating a heart of hope. It's not just like a behavior that I conjure up, like, oh, that's a great word, Jordan, I'm going to try waking up tomorrow feeling like it's Christmas, right? We, our emotions are often secondary responses, and it's the, some of mine out of an internal environment. And so I felt like the Lord just wanted me to share kind of some of my internal processing of how I have learned to cultivate hope in my life because it's actually it's 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 a it's a it's a very it's kind of like a churning within me there's like this spiritual churning that takes place and so I'm going to share an example just from an experience I had while at India and then I'm going to extrapolate um, in some verses from Matthew 5 so if you could turn to Matthew 5 we'll read some verses there in a few minutes um, but I'll start with a story uh, so when we were in India one day we went to uh it was a, a region, a district of uh, Karnataka is the state we were in, um, that is very economically depressed and dilapidated, and uh, it had a lot of gold mines that were shut down because of governmental regulation, and it completely turned the economy upside down, and it's extremely poor. Um, I mean, it's, there's a lot of poverty in that nation, but there's just no jobs, and so people have had to leave, and they have to take trains multiple hours to get work, and just very heavy. It's been a, a pretty heavy, brutal 15 years, I think, for this, this region that we went to. And uh, we went there and we ministered. And I knew some of the background, um, but you could feel it in the environment, just the heaviness. And we ministered all day that day. And um, at the end, there was just, there was so much gratitude. I don't know if I've ever seen such intense gratitude on people's faces. And literally to the point that there were women with tears in their eyes, thanking us for coming, kissing my hand, just so undone with gratitude. And I went and talked to the pastor that's kind of my point man on learning the culture. And I was like, is that bad? They were kissing my hand. Like, I didn't know what to do with that. And he said, no. 
He said it's very rare. He said, but they're doing it because they're so thankful. He said, preachers never come here because there's no offering. They don't have any money, and everybody knows it. And he's like, so they were just so grateful. And I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen gratitude in my life in, like I saw that day. And uh, we got in the, the, the bus. We had about a three-hour drive back to where our home base was. And I honestly just found myself in this place uh, just provoked. And all I could say was, Jesus, like, th- there's something more that I want to give them. I want to give them something real. I want to give them something authentic. And I was just trying to put language to what I was experiencing so I could just feel just the compassion of Jesus for these people. You know, he came to be with the poor. And it was just like, God, like, there's there's something more that I can offer them. And as I'm processing, I knew it was the Lord provoking me. Um, provoking me that I, there, there's a deeper place. There's a greater anointing. There's something, there's something more manifest of his nature that I could offer. And I've heard it said before, we owe the world an encounter with Jesus. And it was, I've intellectually assented with that statement, but it was probably the first time in my life that I emotionally almost was in pain just recognizing the validity and the truth and the depth of how great that need is, that we owe the world an encounter with the face of Jesus. And I just found myself provoked, and I just started, just as we were driving, just saying, Lord, what, what will it take? Where must I go? What, what must I do to come to this place? I know that there's, there's something more. There's, there's a craving in my heart for more of you, God. And he begins speaking as he often does. When I experience these types of things, he begins showing me. These are places where you've put hope in other things. These are little places of your life that have not yet become mine, where I have possessed them and taken ownership of you. He began showing me, and it was as if I could smell the, the, the fire of sacrifice wanting to fall on, on me as I could lay down more. And I had a long conversation that was very uncomfortable for me because I was... I was uh, I was experiencing uh, the deeper cry, surrender to me, surrender to me, and I will satisfy this provoking. And from that place, as I start walking and processing through that, I've been on it about a week now, I will always find the same thing. This is not a, this is not a rare experience for me. This is, this is the churning of how I process many events in my life. I'll come away with compassions kindled, experiencing, okay, Lord, what's going on? He starts drawing me deeper into surrender. That inevitably begins to awaken hunger, and that hunger then begins to produce hope, all right? And so that's a small example of just my, my, my internal turnings, and I'm, I'm going to share more, but I want to give some verses to kind of contextualize what I'm talking about here. Um, so there's two verses that are very important and have been pivotal for me as the Lord has been um, cultivating hope. And you wouldn't really think they go together, but for me, they have. Um, And so Matthew 5, I'm going to read verses 3 and verses 6, two of the Beatitudes. Uh, 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
I believe uh, these are linked. I think all the Beatitudes, you could find associations of how they kind of play off of each other and cultivate. Um, one Cultivating of one will lead to the cultivation of the other. But for me, I have found a process in my life, which is essentially that as I allow the Lord to cultivate poor in spirit within me, it will then position me to start experiencing hunger, which then will begin to activate a hope inside my heart. And so that day uh, I left and I began, the Lord just began drawing me into a deeper recognition and acceptance of my poverty in his sight. And, you know, I found that rich people love to identify themselves by what we have, uh, the connections that we have relationally, materially, uh, whatever it is. We, we like to gather and build an identity uh, when we're operating out of a wealth mindset based on what we have, what we own, what we possess. And that is not evident amongst the poor because they do not have much poverty in its very definition. It's stating uh, an identification based on lack based on I do not have. And so when it comes to spirituality, the, the wealthy in spirit, the rich in spirit, uh, we will you know, hear a testimony, for instance, of something that we haven't seen. Uh, for me, I think I was 19 when someone told me that God still heals and they had seen blind eyes open or whatever it was. Uh, I was very rich in spirit. I was arrogant. So my first thought was, no, that can't be true. No, I don't have that, and it's actually kind of threatening for me to consider that that could be true, and so I need to find a way uh, to figure out why I can kind of diminish what you're saying and talk it into a place of uh, obscurity so that I don't have to recognize my lack, right? And uh, I did that for a long time. I found ways to, you know, people are hyper-emotional. I could focus on abuses that I had seen or I could read about or I could find on Google. And the reality is what I was motivated by was arrogance and a self-protection of an ecosystem I had created where I could make myself feel good about myself based on what I had experienced and what I had and what I knew. And so um, the Lord had to break that, and he's very good at doing that. But that's like, does that make sense? That's the rich in spirit. We, we have to, you know, we're, we're creating, we're kind of building an identity based on possessions, what we have. And the poor in spirit don't, don't do that. The poor in the world don't do that either because they don't have anything to do that with. And Jesus is saying, here's my heart, guys. This is what I'm like. This is what the kingdom's like. I am the one who created the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And poor people, they don't have possessions. They're not really worried about their possessions in the sense of, like, what does that say about me? They've just come to a very humbling and uncomfortable recognition that I have lack. Right? And when we come before God, we all have great lack. This isn't about our material possessions. You can, you can have great material possessions and be very poor in spirit. And what dictates that is our understanding of possessions. And I believe that as you become the possession of the Holy One, the more that God possesses you, you lose the ability to possess anything yourself. 
Because God continually will come and draw and, and, and provoke you into a deeper place of surrender. The gospel message is very clear. You don't get to keep anything. Nothing. You don't get to keep your children. You don't get to keep your spouse. You don't get to keep your finances. You don't get to keep your job. You don't get to keep anything. It all belongs to Jesus. It's the most uh, bold and provocative and terrifying and glorious thing out there. Jesus is like, all right, here's the gauntlet, guys. It's everything. What do you mean everything? Everything. Sign your name on that blank contract and I'll fill it through the days of your life. But it's everything. He's constantly trying to cultivate us in a deeper place. Become poor in spirit. Become poor in spirit. Become dependent. Recognize your lack before me. You know, I was uh, reading a quote recently by Henry Nowen. He's talking about that the key to a joyful life is a non-possessive life. And essentially what he began to extrapolate, you can read him, it's much more profound, I'll give you the spark notes here, is that uh, as soon as we, you know, we receive these blessings from God, and what we are prone in our carnality to do is to try to possess that, is to try to exert my right of ownership of this thing in order to secure its benefits for me, right, so... He's the father of lights who gives to us every single day, but we'll take that blessing and say, okay, now it's mine. And the second we do that, we actually lose the ability to enjoy that gift because our focus is not on enjoying it and being present. It actually just jumped forward into trying to figure out how I can control and manipulate to protect this will not leave me. This is mine. I own it. We are not owners. We are stewards of the blessings that all come from God. No one can receive anything unless it has been given him by heaven. Right? We're stewards of the blessings of this endlessly good God. But that means we're poor. We don't have any possessions. That's not American. I know. But this is the process the Lord takes me on. So what he did in that day, he started just, just pulling out this sense of you're hanging on to the, the, what he said is you have this right and I want you to surrender it. And he knows how to stick you right where it's at. It's like, no, I don't want to surrender that. Wrestling with him. Having to recognize my poverty. It's very uncomfortable. But it's very good because when you recognize your lack, it actually then creates capacity for you to experience hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because when we satisfy ourselves with anything less than Jesus, it's like, you know, it's like that cheap, it's like cheap food. You know how you eat it and you're still hungry, but you don't have any more space to eat. I swear my cafeteria in college, I don't think it was real chicken. I'd eat like three pieces and I'd be hungry 15 minutes later every single time. I was like, what are they putting in this stuff? Right? When you eat food that doesn't have, it, it looks like it, but it doesn't have the real substance and the nutrient. It doesn't actually satisfy, but it steals our capacity for hunger. 
It's the same in the spiritual. When we settle and we hope in other things, when we, when we keep places of our heart, it, it, it creates a sense of satisfaction. It, it satisfies the hunger. It maybe takes the edge off, but it doesn't really, it, it doesn't really like, you know, fill me with hope and inspiration. It's just kind of like, I'm still hungry, but I can't eat. It stills our capacity. And so when God is asking for surrender, he is not doing it to be a joy killer. He's doing it because he wants us to taste the real thing. He, he knows what we were created for. And he yearns with a longing for us to taste and see that he is good. And so he will, he'll, he'll use circumstances, things, his movement, you know, desolations in life or those crises, whatever it is, he uses them to evoke, and he's used them in me, to evoke, surrender this, let go of this, just, just let go of it, just learn to trust me more so that I can satisfy you. And as I have yielded to that process, I have found repeatedly that now I have capacity to experience hunger, which to me is the pain of poverty. You're hungry and you're thirsty. And again, this is Jesus saying, this is what I'm like. This is what my internal reality consists of. I'm poor in spirit. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And I'm hungry and I'm thirsty for the righteousness of God. And as we begin to experience uh, hunger, uh, hope will almost automatically begin to spring up within us because spiritual law here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I believe that that satisfaction comes because when you're hungry, you won't stop until you're satisfied. When you're thirsty, you won't stop until you get a drink. Suddenly, the priorities that we know are supposed to be priorities, they are, it's like they're forced into priority. Does that make sense? It's like suddenly, oh, I I know I, I need to pray and I need to read the Bible and I need to do these things, but... Frankly, I don't really have capacity to experience hunger. So all of a sudden, when you get hungry, the presence of God becomes paramount. It's a political term that when Congress comes into session, the paramount issue, the paramount affair of the nation is that which must be addressed before anything else is talked about. And when you begin to experience hunger and thirst, what is truly paramount becomes paramount. Your hope fixates. Your intention gets set. And you begin to just yearn. I must have more of you, God. And that will evoke a hope that is not superficial and conjured up, conjured up through an emotional, you know, let me exert my hope you'll just begin to find hope in you because as you just feast and drink upon Jesus, hope begins to spring up. I know I'm going to be satisfied. I know that you hear my prayers. I, you know, it draws, hunger pulls upon the heart of God. He's, he's gravitated to it. It's spiritual law. The hungry and the thirsty will be satisfied. I was at lunch a couple months ago with a, a good friend who's 
he's been with me really from the beginning of, uh, of like my preaching ministry. And he was, he was telling me all this nice stuff. You're such a great preacher, yada, 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 the sermon, best sermon I ever heard. And I'm just listening to him. And, and I looked at him. I said, you were there at the beginning, man. I said, you know how crappy I was. He's like looked at me. I said, dude, you heard some bad sermons, you know, that first year, year and a half. And he just started chuckling. He was like, I know I did. (laughs) And he goes, and actually gives me hope. Preaching, because I know it's God. And uh, it's true. Uh, When I started preaching, I was very insecure. Uh, Honestly, probably my biggest fear is public speaking. And oftentimes it's easy, people will see the person standing on the pulpit preaching and experiencing the anointing, but they don't see the story and the journey that really makes it a, a, a supernatural thing where God comes upon a human. And uh, I, I didn't want to speak, I didn't like speaking, I was a perfectionist, it was probably the last thing I thought I'd do with my life. And uh, when I began preaching, I wasn't very good. I was passionate and I had hope because I was hungry for God. And my hunger compelled me, not my gifting, not how great I thought I was. Preaching nights literally to three, five people, sermons that I didn't even like. (laughs) Nervous I was going to get criticized and preaching wrong doctrine and all these things. And I was hungry, so it compelled me. And the nights that I would go and I'd stand in an empty room like this and I'd say, Lord, I want you to teach me how to hear your voice and communicate. And, I, you know, I'd just start preaching spontaneous sermons to nobody. One time someone walked in. That was real awkward. <laughs> I was in like one of those real passionate screams. He's like, what are you doing? I was like, just, just preaching. He's <laughs> like, you, you preaching on Sunday? No. I will be one day, though. You know, but that, I I was hungry. I would go in there. I would preach my guts out before the Lord. I would, deep into the night, many nights, sitting in a sanctuary alone, I believe your promises. I believe you're going to use me. Give me your anointing. Make me the man of your right hand. I'm hungry, God. Show me your face. Speak to me. Give me your wisdom. I cry out for your wisdom. You say, tell wisdom you're my sister. You're my sister. Understanding you're my intimate friend. I'm calling out on your name, God. Use me. Use my voice. If you can use Reinhard Bonnke, you can use me. If you can use Billy Graham, you can use me. I can't tell me how many thousands of times I've prayed that prayer. So I was hungry, and I'm still hungry. I want him I want to see his face. I want to give people something real. I want to show them Jesus. I owe the world an encounter with God. You owe the world an encounter with God. And as I cry out in that hunger, hope begins to fill me. I begin to experience faith. I begin to be reminded of his promises. I begin to use these words and call out and ascertain that which he has placed within me, these desires. Because the hungry and the thirsty get satisfied and hope begins to spring up and you begin to create an internal environment where I believe the promises of God and I will not stop until I see them fulfilled in my life
So sometimes we resist the provoking, the surrender. You know, we resist. We don't want to feel that type of hunger. That sounds uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. But then it produces hope. Produces Christmas morning hope. Where you wake up and it gets you out of bed in the morning. What are you doing today? You're good. And you're never going to let me down. And I'm not just singing it anymore. I am, I am all my affections in my spirit. I am resonating that. Right? It's driving me into your presence. It's like I'm seeking your face because I'm hungry and I'm hopeful. And it pulls heaven down. I heard years ago, I can't even remember who penned it, but whoever has the most hope has the most influence. And hope is, it's attractive. Hope is, it, it, it actually will get on to other people. It's like sprinkle, it has like this effect, right? And it draws people because hope, it's influence. It pulls people. I want that hope. You know, and I, I've been honestly in a marvel at what God is doing in India in, in a, a year and a half, uh, building something that I, honest to God, didn't, I thought it would have taken 15 years just to do what's happened in a year and a half. And I was talking with a pastor, a precious man of God, and has a church uh, amongst the stone cutters, very, very poor people. And we were talking for about 10 minutes. I was asking him questions about the church. I said, what'd you preach on Sunday? Gave me the, uh, the rundown on a sermon. I said, what are you preaching on this Sunday? Gave me the rundown. I asked him, how do you spend your time? You know, just tell me all about his church. And then I said, Pastor Santosh, how much time do you spend on Riverhouse India each week? And he looked at me and he said, three hours every day in the mornings. And I said, what motivates you to spend three hours of your time volunteering for this vision. And he said, first, God. He said, I don't work for Pastor Jordan. I work for God. He said, and God has told me to. And he said, but second, you. He said, I, I've received, he began to go on and basically tell me, this has given me hope. He said, I've been wanting to be a part of a move of God's spirit and seeing God move. And this has given me an opportunity for that. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was like, Jesus, how? How can hope, how, how can it, how? And as I've reflected, he said, because you've been hopeful. You've cultivated hope. You've continued to allow me to disturb you, to draw you into deeper levels of humility and recognizing the discomfort of your poverty, letting go of possession after possession after possession that you didn't know you were going to have to give away when I came to you as a 17-year-old and say, will you surrender your life to me? But you've said yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. And as you've given, it's cultivated hunger, and hunger, and hunger, and it's sprung up as hope. My kingdom works. My ways are effective. Right? Oftentimes, we, we hold on to our things, and it creates comfort. But we were not created for comfort. We were not created to just kind of live a nice, comfortable life. And someday when I die, I'll look back and say, yeah, that was good. 
that we were made to be out on the water. There's something inside of us that it's just, we can't, we, we are not easily satisfied. Can't get an amen. That's like, we just can't seem to get satisfied with this world. It's crazy. It's like, man, no matter what I do, I just, I just can't seem to be satisfied with this world. And C.S. Lewis would say, that's a sure shine that what you're craving is not of this world. What we're craving is to see the kingdom of God manifest through our lives. And uh, we're not all called to be preachers in the sense of up on a Sunday preaching, but you all have desires in you for more of him. You have desires, you have promises yet to be fulfilled. You, I mean, a feast. Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has your name on it. Colossians 1, you've been qualified to share in saintly inheritance. John 1:16, of his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Ephesians 3:17, to know the love of Christ and be filled with his. Anybody read that verse before? His fullness. There's fullness attached to your life. And it's the hopeful. It's the hope filled. It's the hope possessed. That will ascertain it. Because it will create an environment where the faith, the God-given faith, the bold faith, can reach out and ascertain without the fear of disappointment. Because I will risk if I fail, I will not stop hoping. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're longing for. And those pains of that poverty is the hunger and the thirst for righteousness. That will leave us satisfied. So I'm going to invite you all to stand. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that your compassion is kindled for each one of us here. God, that you are yearning and longing with a holy, godly affection for us to experience your goodness in a way that we have not yet. I thank you, God, that there is more. There is more for each one of us. Lord, there is more than we can even imagine. I ask, God, that even now you'll break off the religious box that puts a measure on what you can do through a human life. Lord, there is no measure. God, there is no, 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 no measuring cup in heaven that you've got it all apportioned out. God, it's your fullness that you came to give. Lord, and those that will hold nothing back from you, you will hold nothing back from them. And so, God, I ask that you will find that here. Find that in this house. God, make us a house of hope. God, for our city, for our valley, for our state, for our nation, and to the nations of the world. God, may we be carriers of hope. God, 
people of influence that the world is attracted to so that we can gift them with this holy expectation, Lord, of what you're going to do today. God, I pray that we will yield to your the churning in our lives, God, that as you cultivate true poverty and spirit in this house, God, and, and release hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord, that we will yield to that process fully yield to that process we say yes tonight God and I ask Lord that you will continue to do amazing things in us God I pray that you will evoke a hunger within us that is insatiable for more of you God that we will continue yearning for you and so we just tonight God I call upon the name of Jehovah and I ask Lord for the inheritance for each one in this house God we call it forth in Jesus' name, God, provoke us with a vision of what tomorrow can look like. Provoke us of what the fullness of our inheritance is intended to be, God. We call upon your name. We say yes and amen. Make us a people of hope, God. A deep hope, God. An abiding hope, God, a conviction that compels us morning after morning to find and experience this mercy that's new. We love you, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're doing in here right now in Jesus.